This is Lou Augusta. Welcome to A Rumor of Empathy. Today's podcast is part two of Empathy, Capitalist Tool, a short series on empathy in the context of business and commerce. It is an excerpt from chapter eight of my book, Empathy Lessons, copyright Lou Augusta. Welcome to the show. CEO now means Chief Empathy Officer. CEO no longer means merely Chief Executive Officer, but also Chief Empathy Officer. This time one can hear the groans from the executive suite, not the cubicles. Empathy is one of those things that are hard to delegate. This role shows up like another job responsibility with which the CEO of the organization is tasked, along with everything else she already has to do, as if she did not already have enough alligators snapping at various parts of the anatomy. One has to be nice about it, too. But of course, empathy is not about niceness, though it is not about being unnice either. It is about knowing what others are experiencing because one has a vicarious experience of it too. One has an experience vicariously of the other person's experience and then processes that experience further to expand boundaries and exercise leadership. This puts me in mind of a mini case history reported by Annie McKee in the Harvard Business Review. In this case, an up-and-coming executive, Miguel, not his real name, goes from turning around many struggling divisions in a multi-divisional corporation to a kind of identity crisis about who he is authentically in relation to the possibility of empathy. Miguel is a wizard at finding profit and weeding out waste. Miguel goes from division to division, each big enough to be a separate company, working his financial wizardry. It seems to work. If the case sounds like a thinly disguised version of the career of Jack Welsh, who was CEO of the multi-divisional General Electric GE Corporation from 1981 to 2001, then so be it. Welsh retired from GE with a retirement package estimated at $417 million. That's dollars current in the year 2001. According to some reports, Welsh was nicknamed Neutron Jack because, like the neutron bomb, he eliminated the people while leaving the buildings and the profits standing. Welsh innovated a management style called rank and yank, now widely imitated. Each year, the bottom 10% of his managers, regardless of absolute performance, would be let go. Those in the top 20% were amply rewarded with bonuses and stock options, which were extended liberally from top executives to nearly one-third of all GE employees. Welsh reportedly fought against, but did not solve the chronic problem of Wall Street pressure to sacrifice the sustainability of long-term growth for short-term profit. 
Welsh railed against the very system that he outfoxed brilliantly over a 20-year career as CEO, but note well, only after he got his payout. Regarding shareholder value, Welsh said in a Financial Times interview on the global financial crisis of 2008-2009, quote, on the face of it, shareholder value is the dumbest idea in the world. Shareholder value is a result, not a strategy. Your main consistencies and constituencies are your employees, your customers, and your products, end quote. Now, you're going to expect me to say this method was the epitome of lack of empathy. And from the perspective of the employees whose jobs were eliminated, it definitely lands that way. Yet that is precisely what Welsh was hired to do. Thus, the context. Next act. Quick scene change, back to Miguel. In McKee's HBR, Many Case History, his corporate superiors inform Miguel that those employees who survived his restructuring now hate their jobs. Teams are dysfunctional and, and the by-the-numbers culture has become toxic. Now, I believe this did not happen at GE. Meanwhile, Miguel is told to fix it or he will become an ex-CEO, which he didn't get the role in the first place, which is apparently a part of his agreement and expectation that he's going to be promoted to CEO. Miguel hires Professor McKee as his empathy consultant, and he's making slow, all too slow progress, working with her in expanding his empathy when yet another setback occurs. Miguel's wife throws down the gauntlet, pointing out that he's never available for her and the kids, even when he is supposedly physically present. This hits home, literally. This inspires Miguel to expand his practice of empathy to a new level. He commits to learning how to listen, relate to others as a contribution, take a walk in their shoes, and respond empathically. Thanks to Miguel's renewed commitment and McKee's consulting and coaching, the empathy training works. Miguel expands his empathy in time. All live happily and empathically ever after, both at home and on the job in this just so story. However, in the real world, the Miguel and Welsh narratives dramatically diverge, as do fiction and nonfiction. As a celebrity CEO, the dynamics of Jack Welch's personal vicissitudes were played out in the public press, so they are readily available to the interested gossip, I mean reader, and the details of Welch's three divorces will not be further rehearsed here. This speaks volumes to most ordinary human beings, thus the lives of the rich and famous. The empathy lesson? There is a cost and impact to every initiative and project. The cost and impact extend to empathy. Empathy is expanded or contracted. There is a cost and impact to rank and yank, even for those who do 
the ranking, and, of course, especially for those who are yanked. No one needs to feel sorry for anyone. Reportedly, the yanked personnel walked away with nice packages, but this is not for the faint of heart. On a happier note, Welsh goes on to found a management school, the Jack Welsh Institute, in an initiative designed to rationalize and replicate the business methods and financial magic, in quotation marks, that he developed at GE. Some 35 CEOs heading corporations today have been trained in his method. Now note, mostly that was at GE, not necessarily at his theme branded school. Nevertheless, the principles Welsh developed are also delivered at business schools such as MIT's Sloan School of Management. With the case of Welsh in the background, one realizes that the mini case history of Miguel really does indeed conceal an alternative point of view. However, alternative does not mean inaccurate. It is accurate enough, but a redescription of events that points to a hidden empathic breakdown. Miguel was doing exactly what his corporate superiors asked him to do. If the financial results were not sustainable after his departure, this was so much regression to the mean. Even the average profitability of companies identified by the celebrated book, In Search of Excellence by Thomas Peters and Robert Waterman, even their average profitability and performance dropped sharply within a few years in the absence of sustained leadership. Regression to the mean, key term, regression to the mean means literally that when one performs above average now, get ready for one to perform below average later. When one performs below average now, get ready to perform above average later. The boss will predictably approve of the above average performance and disapprove of the below average one. But the subsequent performance is governed by regression to the mean, not the boss's approval or disapproval. For all the ambiguous comments made about Jack Welsh, such as Neutron Jack, he managed to create an entrepreneurial spirit in a giant multi-divisional bureaucracy. Now that was both the good news and the less good news. For those employees looking to put in their time, performing routine tasks and conforming, conforming above all, prior to collecting a pension, that was bad news. He and his methods demanded a way of relating to possibility that required innovation and transformation that was ultimately career ending for those individuals who just wanted to put in the time and collect the pension. To his enduring credit, Welsh inspired an approach to creating possibilities by his own example that he called boundaryless. Key term boundaryless. In short, he broke down organizational silos by giving permission to cross boundaries between traditional functions in search of possibilities. Possibilities, that is, innovations. 
the boundary crossing sounds like the skillful use of empathy in building and managing cross-functional teams. This bears repeating. He did not, to the best of my knowledge, Welsh did not use the word empathy. Nevertheless, the boundary crossing sounds like the skill use of empathy in building and managing cross-functional teams. Welsh formed cross-functional teams to brainstorm and implement possibilities that had not previously been envisioned. He championed ideas for possibilities for improvement, regardless of whether the ideas came from inside or outside the company. This is the way things have always been done, became the wrong answer, or at least no longer the default reply. Note that boundless behavior should not be confused with boundary violations. Empathy is about crossing boundaries to give the other person the possibility of breakthrough contribution, doing so with respect and recognition, and in a way that preserves the integrity of the boundary. Welsh was in charge at GE for 20 years. He had sufficient time to train divisional leaders in sustaining his practices and retain them in charge of the visions and the divisions that he had restructured. During his tenure at GE, the company's value reportedly rose some 4,000%. If this is not sustained value, I would not know it. Meanwhile, in the HBR mini case history, Miguel's bosses asked him to put relatively short-term financial results ahead of team building, retaining the best people, entrepreneurial informality, and like a good leader, he made it work for a while. He made it work until the bosses decided they did not want him to do that anymore. Surprise, they told him, fix it or you're gone. Miguel's listening a key component of empathy, was operating at an advanced level. He listened well, and he gave his superiors back precisely what he got from them and what they asked of him. It turns out his superiors didn't like it as much as they thought they would. It puts one in the mind of the example of George M. Pullman, who is no longer the model for employer-employee relations. You may recall from the history of business, Pullman ordered the workers fired when they presented him with a petition in protest of a 25% reduction in wages. Pullman, as Miguel's boss, Miguel's superior changed their minds. Having gotten the benefits of the rank and yank approach, boards are allowed to change their collective mind and minds and we're now looking for a CEO more like Walt Disney, Marshall Fields, perhaps Warren Buffett or Sam Walton after the latter made their first billion dollars and could afford to throttle back a notch, cultivating a kinder, gentler image. My redescription of events, while it is accurate that Miguel was innovating with his own version of Neutron Jack, Miguel was also on the receiving end of the breakdown in empathy. He could not give what he did not get. And by the time his corporate superiors figured out what they had wanted, Miguel had perfected his version of the Roman invasion of Britain. The surviving Brits were reported to have said, 
The Romans make peace by creating a desert. The Brits were not referring to an empathy desert, but the idea is similar. McKee's case history is a nice narrative and a useful cautionary tale. However, the tale lacks credibility and confronts us with the next challenge. Empathy, capitalist tool. The Lone Ranger is a vanishing breed in today's modern corporation. Modern work from the upper echelons of the corporate hierarchy to the bottom levels of the lowest cubicle requires empathy. Whether salesperson, software developer, accountant, or business leader, one has got to be a team player, willing to go above and beyond the call of duty, spend long hours on business travel, come into the office and get on Zoom, and be cheerful about it. One has got to get in touch with one's empathy and use one's empathy to satisfy customers, teammates, stakeholders, and superiors. In short, empathy is now a capitalist tool. Managers need to apply ample empathic skills. Managers are required to keep workers contented so that the workers can be productive. Managers are now coaches, facilitating employees feeling valued. So employees are emotionally invested in contributing to the team, team spirit, and the long hours and frequently uninspiring routine work required as a project hits crunch time. Both managers and individual contributing line employees must be able to turn empathy on for the customers, turn it on for teamwork, turn it on for coworkers, but turn empathy off for the competition, turn it off for expanded efficiency and discipline, turn it off for compliance and rule following. This ability to turn empathy on and turn empathy off implies an approach that my coaching has questioned. And I have suggested empathy is a dial or a tuner to be dialed up and dialed down rather than a simple on-off switch. However, even if, for the sake of argument, we imagine empathy as an on-off switch, this practice calls for a level of skill in regulating empathy in which most people lack practical skill. Consider, customers pay their good, hard-earned money for products and services, and it is a low bar to say that customers are entitled to be listened to, treated with dignity, and responded to empathically by a corporation and its representatives. The empathic engagement with and treatment of customers is demonstrably a rewarding investment. How about employees? A person moves into the workforce. He is empathic because those in authority advocate for it as a form of team building. It is important that one be empathic in addressing the issues and concerns of coworkers, customers, and stakeholders. Employees who feel that they are gotten as a possibility, understood 
as a contribution to the corporation and by their company. These employees are emotionally invested in the success of the company. They are inspired to go the extra mile, to deliver value on their agreements, keep their agreements, honor their word, make extra effort for the team, and see their personal contribution in terms of the big picture. They are not just stone cutters banging away at a rock with a hammer in the hot sun. They are building a cathedral, which, by the way, also involves taking a hammer and banging it on some rocks. The difference between banging on a rock in the hot sun and building a cathedral, that's the empathy moment. Neither the employee nor the manager above him or her have been trained in empathy, and it is not part of their job description, at least in any explicit way. Though there are dozens of training firms in everything from compliance to conflict resolution, the number of individuals and firms in North America and the European Union delivering empathy training can be counted on the fingers of one hand. While that indeed may be changing, expecting CEOs to give empathy when they are not in touch with their own empathy, that's a hard sell. Really, it makes no sense. Nor is it fair either to the leader or would-be recipient of empathy. Welcome to the age of Machiavellian empathy. Niccolo Machiavelli, 1469-1527, was famous for saying that it would be best if the leader, the prince in his day, was loved, but it is essential that he be feared. Machiavelli never actually said that the ruler, the prince, must be perceived to be empathic, even as he or she ruthlessly wields power behind the scenes, but that is what he implied. In the context of politics, Machiavellian empathy refers to politicians who present themselves as being empathic while manipulating, spinning alternative facts, double dealing, and so on behind the scenes. Machiavellian empathy shows up in business too. If managers are not in touch with their empathic abilities, they are counseled to fake it till you make it. Many never make it and continue faking it. Whether or not one authentically understands the experience of the other person is less relevant to the Machiavellian empath than scoring points on a checklist of concerned behavior. Is this then the ultimate cynical moment? Is this the ultimate easy way out? Is this the reduction to absurdity of empathy? If empathy is about setting boundaries, where is the boundary? While not a complete response, one distinct limit to Machiavellian empathy is Abraham Lincoln's famous saying, you can't fool all the people all the time. Ask Travis Kopernik in another completely different context. Ask Bernie Madoff or Harvey Weinberg. Strictly speaking, Machiavellian empathy takes nothing away from empathy's intrinsic benefits, uses, and values. Even if one wants to present the appearance of being empathic for propaganda, that is, marketing purposes, while continuing to operate with dubious business practices behind the scenes, 
Reality has a way of catching up with appearances. Amazon said it was a wonderful place to work. Then the New York Times got some employees to comment on the record about mean, that is, unkind behavior. Uber was disrupting the disruptors and creating the gig economy, which supposedly set us free. Then the CEO, Travis Kopernik, got unwittingly interviewed on camera by a driver who was not in touch with that supposed freedom. So far as we can tell at this writing, neither of these breakdowns has resulted in breakthroughs. There is no guarantee that the Machiavellian empath will slip up and document his or her own inauthenticity for us. It rarely happens, but it does indeed happen. Capitalism organizes empathy along with workers and production processes. Under capitalism, empathy is a means, not an end dedicated to the satisfaction of human needs, aspirations, and demands, where here the word demand is used, as in supply and demand, for products and services in the market. Some places are indeed empathy deserts in spite of the appearance of managers with published open door policies. Key term, empathy desert. After a day at the office or on Zoom, or even now go into the office and get on Zoom. In any case, at the day of the office, whether real or virtual, people often feel as if their personality had been erased. Once humanity withers in the desert. So if you find yourself feeling dehumanized by your job, maybe you work in one of those empathy deserts, regardless of the prevailing rhetoric. Instead of the industrial supervisor shouting orders to his workers who curse beneath their breath and conform to the orders, today's managers employ therapeutic strategies to create a convivial atmosphere of trust, relatedness, sociality, loyalty, and care. Happy people sell. Happy people write more software code with fewer bugs. Happy people deliver projects on time, on budget. Value creation in the late capitalist economy is a function of the exchange of emotion and empathy. The way empathy is used in the business media today, it means that corporations innovate in providing benefits to their employees. Many of these benefits enable employees to get away from the job and restore aspects of their humanity that are hard to maintain in the corporate jungle or corporate desert. It means that firms return to their employees some of the revenue that the employees earn for the firms by providing services. Such a proliferation of meanings may be a phase that empathy has to go through before we can really grasp how it, empathy that is, essentially makes a difference. For example, Procter & Gamble offers a personal leave of absence, which the employee can use to engage in a life project, up to three months off without pay, but with continued benefit, allows the employee to pursue a personal life project, and P&G is able to retain valuable talent 
since the employee returns to work after the sabbatical. Though human resources has to sign off, that is, approve the project, the benefit can be used, for example, to complete writing a PhD or a master's thesis that requires dedicated time on task for writing and research, design and implement a database tracking system for a social justice issue, such as Amnesty International or Doctors Without Borders, trek to Nepal and attempt to climb an 8,000 meter high mountain, sail around the world. You get the idea. At Google, Alphabet, parental leave is a benefit. Mom gets up to 18 weeks of paid leave. Dad gets six. The company also pays, quote, baby bonding bucks, end quote, to help with initial expenses, such as formulas and diapers. Another example, Prudential Financial is addressing the employee challenge of being a caretaker for a parent or relative by providing adult care in an employee or loved one's home. The company provides referrals to geriatric care services, as well as elder law and adult caregiving seminars. Another example, IBM contracts with an educational firm to provide a get into college coach for its employees with children applying to college. Let us be clear, they will not write the admissions essay for the children, but provide detailed guidance as to what different colleges are looking for, test scores, grade point average, cultural preferences. All these are valuable in reducing parental, that is, employee stress. Note, this is one corporate benefit that does not require the employee to leave work. Sensibly enough, the worker continues to work, presumably to pay college tuition, while outsourcing some of the elaborate complex project planning needed by the student actually to get into college. Win-win all around. So while my work has repeatedly emphasized that there is enough empathy to go around, empathy is not uniformly distributed. How could it be? Executives who are talented at dealing empathically with customer issues may be less skilled at dealing empathically with employees. And those skilled at dealing empathically with employee issues may be less skilled at dealing empathically with union negotiations, the press, or business partners and competitors, who may be one and the same. Arguably, empathy flows from those with more power towards those on the front line engaging with customers. However, if the customer is big enough, for example, contemplating buying a fleet of jets or a global enterprise software system, the ultimate salesperson turns out precisely to be the CEO or her close colleagues. The executive suite is now on the front line, but who trained those leaders or anyone in empathy? If we gave the executive or the frontline help desk person the kind of empathy exam described by Leslie Jamison, in which an actor learns a script, portrays a client with a problem, in effect, being a secret shopper, what would the grade be? While we may never know for sure, I predict the grade will be 
shall we say, lower than if the executive fills out a self-assessment in which one can pick out the right answer based on common sense and an appreciation of kindness. Thus, the case for expanding empathy through training.